Good morning. Um, I'm, my name is Michael Luna. I am uh, one of the elders uh, here at Church in the Square. Um, probably the one that you see the least, because um, this is not my comfort zone. Um, yeah, like this, I they think the other three kind of find this a little amusing because I'm pretty confident in anything else I do. <laughs> and I like to. My, my love language is sarcasm, so I like to uh, poke a lot of fun at the other three, and I'm sure they're loving this. Um, <laughs> see? Um, yeah, just look, like literally the last time I spoke, it's been, what, a year and a half maybe, maybe a little bit less than that. So this is my annual um, sermon. Um, <laughs> Just a little bit uh, about myself. I, uh, I grew up in Flint, Michigan. Uh, lived a bunch of different places. Texas. Was exiled there for about 12 years. Uh, had a stint in California. And then in uh, the summer of 2014, my wife and I, Nicole, moved up here. Um, we moved up to Chicago because I work in the music industry as an artist manager. And I specifically work in R&B and hip-hop. And just not that kind of scene in Dallas, Texas. And um, so I moved up here. Uh, yeah, we've been here for, yeah, five years. Um, this is home. This is, you know, uh, New York and L.A. Like, that's, those are the hubs of my industry. And, and the Lord is like, nah, like, Chicago Chicago's where you need to be. And then when Church in the Square happened, Jason asked me to consider becoming an elder. And I was like, you're crazy. Like, no, I'm, I'm good. And then the, if anyone ever asks you to pray about something, just, just be ready. I'm like, Jesus is like, pray about it. So I'm like, I'm confident. I'm like, I'm not going to, like, no, the Lord don't want me to do this. Like, be in leadership. Like, you know, like, I'm, look at me. Like, I am not, <laughs> like, like, this is not what you would stereotype as, you know, someone in church leadership. But nonetheless, in two weeks, of praying about it, the Lord was like, yes, this is how I want you to serve me and serve my people. And it's been a joy. Um, specifically, uh, I am the, the elder for groups and staff, and I guess what that means is I, I give oversight to our groups um, and I work alongside Chad and uh, how we like, you know, develop curriculum. Groups is our primary uh, way of discipleship here at Church in the Square, so just kind of lead the oversight give some oversight to that, and then when it comes to the staff, it's, it's a little bit of oversight, it's, you know, um, it's an oversight, it's kind of helping, like, who, who shepherds and leads the leaders. Um, I kind of fit that role a little bit as much as, uh, it's an uncomfortable role, it's just, but it's, but it's how I serve. Um, anyway, let's get into this. This is going to be awkward for me. So before we look at the first commandment, we need to calibrate our minds and hearts. As we looked at Matthew 5 last week, I want to echo the beginning of that, uh, that chapter again this week. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus said these. 
See, the law was not given to a lost people, but rather given to a redeemed people in order that they would live lives holy for the glory of God and become more like their Redeemer. See, we are dependent on the wisdom of God. We are the created and will always be in need of the creator. Even though we are redeemed people, we still sin. We need God's holy law that leads us to turn from our sin. See, the law exposes our sin, but we are no longer under the penalty of disobeying the law. See, Jesus paid the penalty in his sacrificial death in his triumphant resurrection. And therefore, we are no longer condemned by the law, but rather we are convicted by the law. I think someone needs to hear that again today, is that we are not condemned by the law, but we are rather convicted by the law. So today I want to answer four questions. What does this commandment mean? How does Jesus fulfill this commandment? Why must we still obey this commandment? And how should we obey this commandment? So let's look at the first commandment. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. What does this commandment mean? This might sound simplistic, but God is God alone. God is greater than all powers. God is creator. Everything else is creation. God is before all time, therefore this commandment is not just a commandment, but a statement of an unchanging reality. You can't have a God that exists before the one who has always existed. That all means God should be honored and worshipped as the one and only true God. See, God demands exclusive covenant loyalty. As one true God of heaven and earth, God cannot and will not tolerate the worship of other gods. In other words, monotheism, the worship of one true God, is the only acceptable belief and practice. These two words are important before me. See, this Hebrew expression has been taken to mean in my presence. And since God is omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful, there is no instance where anything can, should or can be put before God. In view of the creation account, the writer of Genesis points out how one true God works and shows his supremacy. Specifically, let's look at when God created the sea creatures. Genesis 1.21 reads, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So I want to bring this up because even in the beginning, God is creating. He is showing his supremacy over all things and pointing out he is the one true God. See a little background about Genesis. Like The reason Genesis is being written is because the Israelites had just spent 70 years in captivity in Babylon. If you're not familiar with Babylon, Babylon is what's today, uh, present-day Iraq. And so for 70 years, it, while the Israelites were in captivity, they adopted the belief system of Babylon, which was a multi-god belief system. See, this great sea creatures is referring to this Babylonian myth of two gods warring with one another, and whoever won would be the one who created everything. 
Well, a side note here, how the Hebrew works here might be a little confusing because it says great sea creatures. And so the way the language works is that that when something in, in this Hebrew, when it's a plural, it does not necessarily mean many. They would use this to emphasize greatness. So even put with, a, with the adjective great, great sea creatures, it, it's the writer's referring to this Babylonian god. See, the writer of Genesis is pointing out that this revered god who had in the in the mythology, had warred with another god, won, and created all things in this account. He's pointing out that they've been worshiping a god that is not greater than one true god. Actually, the writer is saying the one true god created this god. He's actually, the, the writer's using a, a bit of like sarcasm and a little bit of hyperbole, saying this, that you've been worshiping, is not even worthy. It was created by the one true god. Throughout the Old Testament, God be flexing, you know, constantly showing his supremacy. We look right before the, uh, the, this giving of the law, you know, we get the account of, you know, what he did, how God uh, freed the enslaved Israelites, the plagues. Um, even when they're, you know, on their journey to the promised land, he provides manna. This dude made food literally come out of nowhere, out of heaven, and provided it for him. It's okay. <laughs> it's like, I love you, dude. I get you, dude. It's good. I don't, I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, you're good, you're good. It's, all right. <laughs> anyway. But yes, I could go on and on about how God does crazy, miraculous things, especially throughout the Old Testament, showing how he is supreme. He constantly is like, I am the one true God, which makes any other small g gods irreverent. In this first commandment, God declares his supremacy. So how does Jesus fulfill this commandment? Well, Jesus was with God before all things. Part of the fulfillment is intrinsic with the nature of the Son of God. See, John 1 starts with saying, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, Jesus did not lay up treasures on earth. Jesus laid up treasures in heaven with his Father. Jesus had no other gods. He didn't even put himself before God. If you want to flip over to Matthew 4, it shows us how Jesus submits to God. We'll look at 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up, took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, 
he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. Again the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him and all showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. I like to think not today, Satan. <laughs> For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Matthew 16, 21, and 23, 21 to 23 says, talks about how Jesus, foretelling his death and resurrection, would not allow Peter to distract him from what he willed. And he reads like this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Jesus did not worship himself. He always deferred to God the Father. In this Matthew passage, he clearly points out that you cannot treat anything equally to God. Here in what Isaiah read earlier, Jesus, Jesus speaks specifically about money. So let's read verse 24 again, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Jesus is pointing out how culture viewed money, which is very similar to how we view money today. See, in Roman culture, money meant power. How easy is it for us to make decisions and depend on ourselves when we have money? Money in itself is not bad, but our hearts are easily deceived. We believe the lie that money can fix our problems, and yes, money can meet physical needs, sometimes. But when it comes to our dependency on God, how often do we ignore it when the money is there? Also, when the money is not there, we seek it like some magical spell that will fix everything. If only I had money for fill in the blank. We want to make it holy by saying we would be more generous if we had more money. We also feel a, a sense of entitlement when we have money. Like, why shouldn't I buy A, B, or C? It's not my problem how it affects those around me. I can buy that house, that car, whatever it is. How often do we put things before God? It may not be money for you. It may be your kids. I don't have any, but I've seen what it looks like when parents make little gods of children. No longer is it, what do you want me to do, God, but what is best for my child? Fam, what's best for your kids is being obedient to God. I'm trying I'm sorry, I'm ridiculous, I'm sorry. Maybe it's your job, climb the ladder, get the promotion so you can get the validation, get the resources. This God will never satisfy because it was never meant to be your identity. 
You are not your job title. Let me say that again. You are not your job title. You're a son or a daughter of God in Christ, first and foremost. Or it could be being comfortable. Oh, yes, this pretty new little God. Millennials, I'm talking to you. I know I look like one, but I was born in 1979. <laughs> and I turn 40 next week. Let that blow your mind. Why should I sacrifice anything for anyone? I'll love my neighbor as long as it's not, as long as it's not inconvenient. I'll pick up my cross as long as it's not heavy. We believe the lie that God wants us to be happy. Nah, fam, God wants us to find our complete joy in him. Again, Jesus never put himself or put anything before God. He always depended on God the Father. He taught us when we pray to pray to the God to God the Father in the beginning, or in Matthew 9, not to anyone else. In the garden, when he was about to be betrayed and arrested, he sought the comfort and submitted his will to that of God the Father. In Luke 23, when he's on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And finally, he's about to ascend to the right hand of God the Father, and Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the promise from God the Father. And when he does ascend, they go to the temple blessing God. So even when Jesus physically leaves the earth, he, is still, he still points us to God, reminding them of the promise, showing them the supremacy of God. See, Jesus fulfills the first commandment by being obedient and having nothing else before God. Why must we still obey this commandment? Again, it's, it may sound simplistic, but we still obey this commandment because there are still no other gods. It is still Yahweh, God the Father. I'm getting done. Food's coming. Fam, do we live our lives in such a way that nothing in our lives comes before God? We may not worship other gods from other religions or beliefs, but do we live our lives in such a way that we do not put anything else before God? If I'm honest, I do this often. How it plays out for me probably is not the same, how it plays out for the majority of you in the room. See, for most of the people in the room, this may be difficult to understand because it's not your life experience. See, I struggle with putting my ethnicity before God. This plays out in how I view white people in light of interactions with them in the history of how my people, in case you don't know, I am native. I am from the Tuata tribe of New Mexico, the people of the Red Willows. And, have, and we have been treated, how we've been treated for the last few hundred years here in this country by European colonizers, I often ask, how can a just and loving God let the largest genocide in the history of the world happen? When white people live in a way that their culture is God, then, it, then the response for me is to put my culture as God, and it kills us both. We're making war with our little gods against one another. White culture thinks their worldview is normal and should be normal. For example, every, everyone has the same opportunities afforded to them, whether it's education or employment. For me, in turn, then I make my ethnicity my God by 
making my identity not a child of God in Christ who views everyone as an image bearer of God. And I've got a story to tell that my fam in the room of color can probably relate to. See, not even a month ago, after this gathering, I went home and, and Nicole had gone to uh, lunch with some friends and I accidentally left my, left my keys with her. So I walked home and I got home and I was locked out. And I was standing there for about five minutes on the stoop and this police officer rolls up. And the way they rolled up, my house is here and they're coming this way. And they come across the street and they park. And he was like, well, how do you know they were, you know, their eyes are on you. There was a tree that was in their line of sight. They could not see me. So they backed up and, and the officer just stared at me. And I stood there for what felt like an eternity, but it was probably about 20 minutes. Nicole had given my keys to Jason. Jason and his family pulled up. And when Jason gets out of the car and I walk down to meet him, then the police officer rolls off and he, I'll never forget this, he says, did what just happened, did what I think just happened, happen? And I was like, yes. This is one of probably like three or four stories I could tell you about, about how like my interaction with, with white culture, white authority, I wasn't planning on telling this one, but I've got to. Probably this past summer, Nicole and I used to live over right across the street from uh, Brew Brew, right next to Cos Park. It was a Friday night. We were, we stayed in. We were in by 9.30, watching a movie. I'm too old to be going out anymore. That's what I do for my job. I don't like, yeah, I don't want to. But we're watching a movie, it's about 9.30, and we start hearing this commotion outside in our, in our front yard. And I get up to walk to the door, and I look out the, the window, and there's this kid, a kid, banging on our door, saying, I'm not dangerous, I'm not dangerous, my friend has just been shot. I look over his shoulder, and I see this kid laying on our stoop, on our steps, I have no idea. It's dark outside. I don't know where this dude's been hit. Like, where is... I immediately call 911. Once I get off the phone to the dispatcher, I go outside. I meet Brandon. Brandon is the kid, the young man that got shot. He's there bleeding on our stoop. A kid, a 15-year-old kid, not an adult, a kid. This dude could literally be my son. We have the same brown skin. The first responders show up, and they could not be more annoyed that they had to treat this kid. They were annoyed that they had to give their attention, that they had to leave where they were to come treat this kid. And about five minutes later, there's about eight unmarked police Cars come to the house. I don't even know what they were doing. Nicole and I are standing out there on the stoop. No one even says a word to us. No one asks us a thing because they were annoyed to have to be there to treat a kid. 
Literally all the cops had to say to him was, what's your name, how old are you, and what gang are you affiliated with? That's all they cared about. It was really hard for me not to lose my, my mind. A kid is sitting there bleeding. Now, granny, it is not necessarily life-threatening, but I mean, he's just been shot, the trauma, and they could care less. Once the ambulance comes, it puts Brandon in the ambulance, they take off. His friends, who are also minors, but the police and the, and the other first responders that are there could care less. There was no one to call their parents and say, hey, your, your child has just experienced this thing. Maybe you should come pick them up and take them home. No, they didn't care. They just let them go because they didn't want to be inconvenienced. But every day God reminds me that white people are his image bearers. Even though my people has not been treated as such, we've been reduced to athletic team mascots. It's not honoring. There are teams that the name they use is literally a racial slur. And another one made us into a cartoon. We've been exiled to land that is less than desirable. We can't even own the land on our reservations. If we want to build something, whether it be a business or residential, we have to get the federal government's approval. We have no land. We are in the wilderness. Even in the, the hallowed Declaration of Independence, we are referred to, and I quote, merciless Indian savages. But even with these injustices, God is still the same. He is still the only God. My struggle is that I want to believe that I'm morally superior. Thanks be to God that my hope is not in any people, group, or circumstance. Let me repeat that. My hope is not in my people group, your people group, or any circumstance that happens. It is only in God. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, that, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for me, since I have been forgiven of my trespasses, 
I can no longer count anyone's trespasses against me. I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. I cannot hold anyone's trespasses against me, no matter their ethnic background or culture they are influenced by. I have to be what God has called me to be, and I cannot live this out and keep my ethnicity as my God before the one true God. So how should we obey this commandment? Let's look at Matthew 6, 24. Matthew records Jesus saying, you cannot serve God in money. I wonder how that hit Matthew. See, Matthew was a tax collector. That was his profession before he became a disciple. See, his business was not just collecting taxes, but it was scamming people for his own financial gain. The tax collectors were funding the oppression of their own people for the benefit of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was very oppressive to the point if you opposed them, they would kill you, put your head on a pike outside the city walls as a deterrent to anyone else. Tax collectors were hated by their own people. The religious leaders viewed them as people not to be associated with. See, Matthew was choosing to serve money over God that day. Then Jesus showed up. See, this account of Jesus saying you cannot serve money or God happens in chapter 6, but Matthew doesn't become a disciple until chapter 9. More than likely, Matthew was present when Jesus said these words, you cannot serve money and God. We don't know the exact context of how Matthew got this information. More than likely, he was there. Can you imagine how how uncomfortable he would have been hearing that? If you allow me to paint a possible picture, imagine Jesus drops that line and then looks right at Matthew. Can you imagine the lump in his throat he's feeling, the uncomfortableness, the uneasiness? But later in Matthew 9, when Jesus calls Matthew, he simply tells him to follow him, and he does. I know this sounds very simplistic, but when God calls us through Jesus, there is no let me think about it. It demands an immediate response. In that moment, Matthew isn't. In that moment for Matthew, it wasn't even an option. Jesus didn't ask; he told him, "Follow me." We obey the first commandment not by thinking about it. Not God's not interested in our input. I know they may come across as harsh, but since when does the creation dictate anything to the Creator? About a month ago, we had a time of confession here at the gathering. We had. People listened to God and confessed some things that were by no means comfortable. They didn't plan it. They responded to God immediately, which in turn, by not putting anything else before God and being obedient, a culture of confession is created and makes the church a place to be vulnerable. Imagine that if it would happen on a regular basis. See, God sent Jesus to pay the penalty we could not pay in the work of the cross. Jesus reconciled us through this. Fam, I want to end on this note. How we obey is through an immediate response as we discussed. One reason that immediate response might be difficult is because you don't know God. Thankfully, God gave us his scriptures. He chose this medium to reveal himself, his character, and what he expects of his creation. That would be us. He reveals what relationship with him looks like. He shows us how we are reconciled to him through Jesus.
Jesus. I'm not going to pretend that every word and every account in the Bible is easy to understand. I spent three and a half years centered on studying the scriptures with a master's degree in Hebrew and in Greek, and I still came out of that with questions. None of us have arrived or have it all figured out, so don't be overwhelmed when you come across something in the Bible that is confusing or you don't understand. So you know where in the scriptures does it say that you have to do this on your own. Actually, it says the opposite, to do this in community with one another. That's what our groups are for. We gather to talk about the scriptures that were preached here at the gathering in hopes that we would mature in Christ. I'm about to volunteer all four of us for something that I didn't ask, but here we go. See, you can contact one of us. You can contact Jason, Chad, me, or Juan. See, I just met the other day with someone from our, from our church because they had been reading something in the scriptures and it was, there was, there was some issues they wanted to talk it through. So it was fine. We met up at a coffee shop and talked it out, talked about it. It's that simple. And I was very honored and glad to do it. And if I'm being fully transparent, I'd rather do that than this. <laughs> yeah, I can talk to you one on two, three, four, but one on room full of people. Hmm. I am not, and the other elders are not here to judge you based on your scripture knowledge. It's not a contest. And I'll end with this. Because there might even be times where you look at the scriptures together and I say, I don't know. Let me research this further and let's talk again. So we cannot obey the first commandment of God. We cannot put anything before God if we don't know him. I'm done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, you. Despite my nerves, despite my heart racing, you spoke today. Lord, help us. Help us, whatever the the God is that we are putting before you. Let us be convicted by the first commandment that we don't put any other gods before you. Let us always remember that the work of the cross and Jesus' death and resurrection, what that means for us to be reconciled to you, Let us not forget that. I thank you for your word. Let it change our hearts, as only you can do. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.